Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show, where we aim to touch, move, and inspire you every single week. Really? We're really going to introduce our own show? Maybe we should leave it to the pro. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. One second, ladies. Here we go. Sarah Maxwell and Natalie Cook are experts in visualization and deliberate use of the law of attraction. As dynamic world athletes representing Canada and Australia in beach volleyball, they honed in on achievement at the highest level. Winning an Olympic gold medal on her home beach of Bondi is a pinnacle example. Their powerful techniques transmute the spiritual to the tangible, allowing thousands of their community members to bring their vision boards to life. Recently, they've taken their expertise on the road as the full-time family, where they inspire, coach, and lead people to create their unique, deliberate family life using a simplified three-step process. Welcome to the Nat and Sarah Show. Join us for twice-weekly episodes. Each week, Nat and Sarah will teach us how to deliberately create results in all areas of life using their unique three-step process. Not only that, they'll also sit down with some of their favorite high achievers who have manifested what most merely dream about. Are you a member of the community? Go to bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal to follow along with each workshop style teaching episode and get ready to take action on your inspirations. Today, we continue the conversation with what Forbes magazine deems one of the most powerful women in sport for 2018. I would like to just drop the line about sport and say this is one powerhouse woman you all get to meet today. Having been a professional singles and doubles tennis player for the United States with multiple titles to her name, she then went on to flourish on many powerful committees. Recently completing a double term as chairman and president of the USTA, clearly this woman is on fire. Being the youngest, the sexiest, I added that, the only former player and the only African-American to ever serve in this role in the association's 137 year history, you can't deny that this woman knows how to lead. I'm thrilled to sit down and find out more about the Chicago native who we have the pleasure, or so who we had the pleasure of meeting while at the Australian Open, and then be warmly welcomed to the US Open President's Suite to see the changes she is making for tennis, for women, for people of color, for equality and diversity overall. So thank you, Katrina, for making the time to share the global impact you're making. It's just awesome. Thank you for coming on today. Oh, have she, has she muted herself? She was just with me. Hey, Sarah. <laughs> there she is. Yeah. Are you there? It's going, it's going in and out a little bit, but hi. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. I thought you were like dumbfounded by your own recognition of who you are. Well, you know, when you hear it, you don't believe it, but you know, you have to let it sink in a little bit, but uh, thank you for that warm introduction. You're so welcome. I, you know, meeting you was um, straight away, Nat and I have this theory that you can be walking down the street and you can feel powerful people. And sometimes we just we just say to each other, we don't even know someone and we look over and we know that that person is up to something in life. And ironically, yeah, it was just like you sitting there was like, I want to hang out with her. So thank you for wanting to be friends too. And I'm so curious today to track 
the rise of a leader. So could you take us back into your world as a young budding tennis player in Chicago and what it took to rise through the ranks and then really bring glory to your Northwest University team? Well, you know what? It's, um, it's very interesting because I think when you get involved in a sport, um, particularly back in the 70s, you don't really know where it's going to take you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more about having fun, you know, running around the court, sweating, hitting a tennis ball and, and, and having a passion for competition. I competed at everything I did, whether it was jumping rope, playing jacks, doing hopscotch, it didn't matter. So when the opportunity with tennis came along and, and I kind of had a nick for it, um, I was very fortunate to be able to develop as a player, you know, play competitive tennis as a junior, you know, through high school and, and get a scholarship in college. Um, again, only knowing it to be, you know, a sport that I love to play and I was passionate about and not recognizing um, the life skills that I was learning along the way particularly in an individual sport. You know, we talk about tennis being an individual sport, but at the end of the day, you have to work with someone else, whether it's a coach or a hitting partner, uh, trainer, et cetera. So it is about team because it's about trusting one another's uh, instincts, their guidance and their leadership. And so, you know, as I've moved through my professional uh, tennis career um, and got out of it, you know, I, I felt that leadership skills were, uh, at the top throughout, um, because I always wanted to get involved and engaged in the political side of the sport, you know, joining the board of the WTA Players Association early on, um, and then the WTA Tour. So, you know, it was kind of cool. It was a great opportunity, and people just don't know what they're getting into uh, at such a young age, but it's about grasping it, and embracing it, and, and moving forward with it. Yeah, got it. So I can see that from an early age, you were competitive, that you always sort of had the knack for leadership and, and moving to the front, engaging. And so, you know, firstly, you chose tennis. You know, if you're pretty much, I can sense that you'd be competitive and good at a lot of things, but you chose tennis. And so I'm curious, were there any challenges, um, you know, in the 70s as a female athlete, as an African-American female athlete, what, were there some challenges for you? Well, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I grew up in very humble beginnings with my parents being um, school teachers. I have two older brothers. Um, and you're talking about getting in a sport that is relatively easy to get into. It doesn't cost much early on until you start to develop um, and you're starting to play competitively um, with, with tournaments, there's entry fees, there's travel, you know, there's individual lessons, et cetera. So, I never felt them. Those were the things that my parents felt. Um, They never expressed uh, how expensive it was. I had no clue because I was a kid and I was doing what I wanted to do and my parents were making it happen. Mm -hmm. So as you get older, you understand the sacrifices that were made. Uh, I never, I never really experienced any, um, any racism as a kid or even a teen, teenager growing up, growing up. Uh, all my tennis friends, you know, when I started playing, I, I was playing in, uh, you know, an all black community and an all black program. And even when I, I traveled the first summer, I was playing with people that looked like me. So I didn't know, I didn't know that it wasn't a sport that we weren't really prominent in. Um, and it was also the summer that Arthur Ashe won Wimbledon on television. So 
I didn't know any different as a kid. And I think that may have helped me, but it also was something that my parents never, never made me feel that I was different or that it was a sport that I didn't belong in. Um, as I started developing and playing in the suburban areas and, and all the tournaments, then I realized that I was only one or one of two that were playing week in and week out. But it didn't make any difference to me because I was also someone that made friends very easily um, and never felt that I was different. Got it. I love, thank you for that. Um, because I, I love the true account because there's a lot of assumptions about what people go through. And everybody, like my father-in-law is reading Michelle Obama's book and he's like recounting it all to me and telling me about some of her challenges and law school and stuff like that. And it's like, sometimes you just want to mirror one person's experience onto another, but it's not like that. So thank you. Um, I, I really relate to some of the things you said, even about being a woman in sport, whereas I never experienced um, any drawbacks either. So um, I relate to that. And however, I am curious, I didn't even write this question plan to ask you, but now I want to know is you and winning. Are you, how do you approach winning and how do you deal with losing? I want to, I can't imagine how you deal with losing. I got I to hear this. <laughs> ah, there you go, Sarah. Here we go. How much time do you like? No. Talked about golf you and know, I knew, I was like, this girl cannot make a bad shot. I got to hear this. You know, so look, I was all about winning. Um, it, it's very interesting. I think the end of the, the end of my first summer when I joined this program, you know, I wasn't supposed to be in the program that that I was in. It was for ages nine to 18. I was six. I begged, I bullied my way in um, by, by begging my parents and the instructors. And, and finally they let me in. And as a visual learner, I knew exactly what to do when I got on the court, but I was all about winning. So at the end of that, at the end of that program, I got a little trophy, my very first trophy. And it was for the most improved player. And I was like, this is so cool that you get trophies. So when I competing you know we go into the tournament and they have big trophy and a little trophy on display you know from the first day to show that what the what the awards were so I always told my dad I said dad I want the big trophy so for me it was all about getting the big trophy which entailed meaning I had to win so I used to I always say this it wasn't I never looked at it as winning and losing. I always looked at the end goal, which was to win the big trophy. And in order to do that, it was about winning. But in the, in the process, I hated to lose a point. Not a game, not a set, not a match. A point. And so I had a little bit of a temper tantrum, if you will. Uh, I wasn't, you know, the most polite. I wasn't mean towards my opponent, but towards my racket or the court or maybe the ball occasionally you know I took a, took my frustration out on those things um so yeah I was I was a, I was kind of a sore loser um unfortunately I didn't lose a lot in my early years as a, as a, a junior but you know you you learn from your losses and and you know that you, what you have to go back and get better at and I think as I got into the professional ranks, you know, I ended up losing more than I actually won, particularly in singles, not so much in doubles. But there's a balance there. And I think it's really about, you know, winning is that ultimate goal, but you have to make sure that you're doing everything that you need to do to put you in that position. And if you don't win, 
and that word happens to be lose, then you have to reevaluate and, and say, did I do everything necessary to put me in the best position to come out on top? And so I look at that in business and everything that I do today about being prepared. And if you're not prepared, you're, you're not giving yourself the best chance to come out on top. I'm glad you addressed, you know, the early years versus as you become more professional, because I think over the years in sport, I noticed that when you're young, generally, if you're, if you reach the professional ranks, you're generally winning most of the time when you're young. And then as you get older, it seems to me that the arts, the true champions actually know how to work a loss. And, and that's what I think is a real, um, uh, did you say work a loss? Yeah, like, I don't know if that's the right word, but they know how to, like, piggyback the loss and not let it consume them or kill them, I guess, ultimately, because you have to keep, you have to keep going. Like, it's a constant, you know, as a professional, it just seems to me that it's constantly demanding you, the best of you. So thank you for addressing the fact that as a singles player, you were, ch- you know, there was more challenges, you had to deal with loss, and now it's helping you in your business. So Katrina, did you always have a clear vision of what you wanted in life? Like, were you th- that kind of person that had a mission and purpose and we're all over it? You know, I, I would have to say no. Um, I, I have been, I'm the type of person or I kind of grew up the type of person and knowing, I think once I knew that I wanted to be a professional tennis player, I knew that was the path that I was on and that was my ultimate goal. Uh, I had goals. I was, I was fortunate enough to have a coach. Um, one of my coaches when I was 12 sat me down and we, and taught me about short term, long term, midterm and long term goals. Mm-hmm. And, and in that process, I actually accomplished all of those goals, which led, which, which also said that I was, I went there, I completed two years, I turned pro. And I also said I was going to retire at the age of 30. And I was 31. So it, it's ironic how those things happen. And or I guess maybe once you put it on paper and in your, your mind, you start to gravitate towards that. Mm-hmm. I did not have the goals set after, um, you know, at a 12 year old, you don't know that. <laughs> but along the way, I, I, you know, I knew that I wanted to make a difference in any and everything that I did, mm-hmm. whether that was playing tennis or being in the boardroom or you know, helping others, any, any way that I can help others uh, is, is kind of like my own personal mission. So all the things that have transpired um, since my professional career, you know, I even said I wanted to be a commentator. So I studied communications in college. So, you know, I've commentated for Tennis Channel and, and been on uh, CBS Sports Network on an all women's sports uh, hosted show. I'm a co-host on there called We Need to Talk. So all those things are, are kind of fell in the place, mainly because subconsciously I did have a plan, but mm-hmm. I didn't really have a written plan. And I think I'm at the, the stage of my life now, mm-hmm. having gone through uh, being a, you know, CEO, president, chairman of the USTA, you know, what's the afterlife? Um, mm-hmm. I'm the executive director of an NJTL chapter called the Harlem Junior Tennis and Education Program that I've been involved with since 2005. Um, so that's my, you know, immediate go-to once I, once I ended my, uh, my tenure at the USTA. 
but it's more about what's next. And so, you know, my vision is really about inspiring, you know, motivating and empowering people to be the best that they can be, but also to understand that, you know, if they have a plan and they have a goal, then they can move forward because that's the one thing I didn't always have, um, you know, back to your question. And I think it's important and it's never too late to sit down and map out your life mm-hmm. or your goals because you're hopefully you're going to accomplish your goals. And once you accomplish them, then you have to have a new set of goals. Um, and and that, I think that's a, you know, a powerful message, particularly for women, because we go through so many different stages of our lives from developing as a young girl to finding out who we are and going into that professional world, uh, maybe starting a family, and, you know, we're juggling things all the time. But at the end of the day, you really have to know what's important to me and what are my steps to make sure that I accomplish those. Beautiful. I love that, that it's never too late to have a clear plan. Um, and so you mentioned a couple of transition periods, you know, from athlete to, you know, board member and, and some of the roles that you've had chairman and president of the USTA. And like you said, again, there's this chapter ending. How do you go in those transition periods? Do you, is this when you're, um, is there always something on the horizon for you or do you actually sit down and kind of take stock of how things were and and what you want to do next? I think I've been very fortunate that things have have come my way. Um, I am in a transition period of saying, okay, things are coming my way, but is this exactly, is this what I want? And so it's really being able to take a step back and and not say yes to the first thing or the second thing or the third thing that comes your way, because it might not be right for you. Mm -hmm. It may be right for that company or that person, but doesn't mean that it's right for you. And, And that's where the planning and goal setting and understanding uh, what it is that you want to accomplish and, and, you know, have your checklist. Okay. This opportunity has come my way. You know, how many check boxes does that cover on what it is that I actually want to do? Sometimes mm-hmm. we have to make sacrifices and, and maybe you're not, you're, you're not going to get all of those check boxes, but that's okay. Um, but if, you know, if 50% of those check boxes are there or more than 50%, then you have a chance to create and generate what's necessary um, in that workspace or that, in that life to accomplish, you know, the other check boxes. Yeah, I got it. It's good. It's good that you say that because to check in with your own self and, and I actually just wrote a post about that. Like there's times where we can find ourselves living somebody else's life, you know, allowing the opportunity and just like, Oh wow, some, there's an opportunity for me saying yes, without really checking in, like, is this in alignment for what I want to do? And so, right, exactly. So I want to change tax just a little bit. Cause I, we have to talk about the moment during the U S open final last year, like as if you've never been asked this, but when Serena Williams felt under pressure and things began to spiral for her, um, Nat and I were watching open mouthed as it all went down. And we did, like we literally looked at each other and said, Oh my God, what is Katrina going to do with this? 
So do you start strategizing? Like, so when we put ourselves in your shoes, we're like, does she start strategizing as she's seeing it all unfold, knowing that your leadership is going to be required and it's going to be vital? Like, it, what's your process? How did that, how did, how did you deal with that? So, so, so here, here's the deal. I didn't see the initial altercation, <laughs> you know, I, so what happens is, um, and you've been there, the, the president's box is at the opposite end of the court entry um, of the stadium. Oh and so goodness. at 4-3, when Osaka, you know, broke, uh, broke Serena, I said, okay, well, I need to start making my way down courtside because if she happens to close this out, you know, I can't wait to see if it goes 5-3 and then scurry or if it goes 5-4, you know, or the match is over. Um, so, you know, at 4-3, I got up from my seat to, you know, say my goodbyes to the people nearby because by the time I would have gotten back up there after the match, um, you know, my guests would have, would have departed. And so I make my way down to the court. And as I'm walking underground, I hear this enormous eruption you know like a locomotive and I'm going what is going on and then people in the hallway are scurrying because they were either on the court and they're trying to you know these are like tv people trying to get in position and I'm and I'm like I'm I'm dumbfounded because I have no idea what's going on so when I walk out to the through the gate and I hear the commotion and the sounds from the crowd and I look up at the scoreboard, it's now 5-3. Now, it didn't take me that long to get down there for, you know, for a game after a changeover to have occurred. So when I walk out, I go, what's going on? And they're like, well, Serena just got a game taken away. And I'm going, huh? So, again, I'm confused because I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew nothing. I had to go inside to find a monitor to listen to, you know, to the broadcast when they're kind of confused too. So I'm kind of dumbfounded. Um, so long story short, you know, I sit down courtside and, um, you know, Osaka is up 5-3. So Serena holds serve to go 5-4. And then she kind of walks over to the side. The supervisor was there and I'm sitting there. She locks eyes on me and I'm going, oh, crap. Don't, I'm like, I, I, I'm like, I'm not in this. I have no idea what's going on. And it's nothing I can do. It's a, you know, it's nothing I can exactly. do. Yeah, yeah. But so when she turns and, and, you know, towards the supervisor, the supervisor's walking out on the court, you know, I just, a, a sigh of relief. So I get up and leave courtside because I don't want to be a distraction in any form or fashion. So I'm, I'm relegated to what's happening on television because it's, you can't really you, you don't know what she's saying obviously everyone at home knew what she was saying but the people in the in the stadium didn't know right because yeah, she's not speaking into a microphone on on the court that's true um so at the end of the day and and, and, and you know the match is over I know what has transpired as far as the penalties and the you know her displeasure um you know, I've got to go out there now and make a speech. I'm making a, I'm making a speech, not completely fully aware of what's going on. You know, it's, I've, I've got multiple people telling me in their words what happened, but again, it's difficult. And, um, you know, I'm, and I'm a big 
fan of Osaka. Um, you know, I saw her a few years ago when she was a rising star. They had a a a, a, a tournament in Singapore and um, the year in WTA finals, and they had a rising star category. And she was one of those rising stars. And I'm like, at this point, you know, I'm looking at her at this moment saying, wow, you know, she was once a rising star who has now risen. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited for her. But then there's this controversy that's going on and in trying to find, you know, the right words for both players in that moment, um, you know, it was challenging. It was difficult. Um, apparently, you know, what my intent was misconstrued on the podium and I got, heat for it but it is what it is because as long as I know what my intent was I have nothing to be um sorry about you know I apologize for the misunderstanding and you know everyone was calling me to to set the next day to explain and um and I still at that point I had I hadn't even heard what I had said people I I'm you know Twitter is just going crazy on me I, but, didn't, uh, oh, I didn't know there was, you know, you, you, okay. you learn, you live and you learn and, um, and, and it is what it is, you know? Do you know what's so interesting about that? Firstly, I didn't even know that there was negative, um, you know, stuff about it at, at the time. But, but the thing that was interesting to me was people have to put themselves in that position. Like, so if those of you that don't know, like Katrina hosts a box of dignitaries, um, maybe celebrities, um, tennis on, you know, people who have done amazing things in tennis and she's in charge of this whole box and room of people. Then you're down there not knowing anything out in the stadium, having to watch it on broadcast. Like you said, you can't even really hear what people are saying. And then you have to go out into a feisty New York city crowd and they wanted, you could just feel that they wanted to protect Serena. And it was like they were just ready to pounce on someone. And I mean, I guess my question more to you about why I'm even asking about this is to me, that's pressure. Like you were under pressure in that moment. Maybe you don't see it like that. So how do you approach pressure? Like the way you did as an athlete or do you have a different approach as a business Person. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I would have to credit that situation as, you know, being an athlete, being a player, having played on a stadium court, you know, I, it would not, I don't think it would have been as bad, but, you know, the problem was is when they announced the United States tennis open, United States open, um, you know, the crowd all booed because they were booing for what it transpired on the court. Many of them didn't know the rules or, or why um, Serena was penalized in the way that she was. And, and then the guy puts the mic in my face. So I have 20, I have 23,000 people booing at this moment. And I'm saying, okay, they're not booing at me personally. I'm like, I didn't do anything. So, so it was in that moment that I rise. I'm like, okay, I'm down triple break point, but I got to get through this. Um, And I had prepared, you know, I had prepared notes, but I didn't know that the crowd was going to erupt in that way. So I had to find different words that were, you know, that I had written down to try to address the situation in real time. Um, it wasn't your normal ending. And, you know, and, and making the address or, or wanting, you know, the intent of saying that, you know, this, I think I said this isn't the outcome that we were hoping for. We're looking for 
it wasn't about the outcome of the match as to who won or who lost. It was more about the outcome of the uh, circumstances that had happened on the court. Yeah. You know, with the, with the penalties and the crowd's involvement, et cetera. And, and so, you know, I chose the wrong word in outcome and, you know, oh. we all make mistakes. And, okay. and so I got, you know, I got crucified because people thought when I said outcome was that I, I was looking for the outcome of Serena winning. I didn't really care. It was a great oh. match. You've got two players, you know, yeah. Would it have been nice for her to win her 24th grand slam? Absolutely. But you got to look at this other young lady who, fought through so much adversity through the week with the with the weather you know being in all these top players and then being able to close out close out this match in a somewhat hostile environment for her it wasn't towards her but it's, it's just not the way you want to you know win your first grand slam title and so all credit goes to and went to um naomi in that situation and uh, so, yeah, I, I pulled on my, you know, my athletic experience um, under pressure. You know, you, you pull on your experience of, of being live on television often as a commentator and a co-host mm-hmm. and knowing that every word that you say is, is you know, is broadcast. Um, and, you know, I, I succeeded in most of it and failed with one simple word. And you can see how one simple word can really... Wow get people in trouble and, and get people to pounce on them. And, and you know, what's interesting now knowing you gave me th- that more information is that I wanted to talk about this because often with successful people, we just talk about all the good stuff. But to me, successful people actually rise and stand when the crowd is booing, you know, like when things are feisty, someone got given the mic. And to me, that's what makes you successful because you stood there, like you said, triple break point down, like rise up and not even rise up. Perfect. Like this is, this is what's so amazing about it. Then you get flack the next day. And to me, it's that then you deal with that. Then you apologize for what you need to apologize and you tackle that. And, and so I wanted our, our community to hear this because sometimes I think there's a false perception that, Oh, everything goes glowing. It's easy for Katrina. No way. You know, nobody wanted to be having that mic on that day and you had it, you had to rise. So I I like that, that we're bringing this forward because to me, successful people stand in the crap um, longer than most unsuccessful people are willing to do. So thank you. Thank you for talking about it. Didn't even realize that there was a backdrop C. So, you know, I guess I don't look at Twitter, um, which is safe. That's good. But my, <laughs> it is safe. <laughs> it's safe to not do that. But my last question is, you know, as you, my feeling when I was in the U.S. president, you know, U.S. Open president's box was that the face of tennis was changing and it was really exciting. So what is it that you want to do next like if you could have your dream wish for how you want to make your next impact what would it be well i mean first of all i'm actually writing a book so uh uh, it it should be out by september of 2020 um it's really talking it's more of a leadership book but it's talking about my experiences my experiences in life that led me to 
um, that led me to leadership roles and, and hoping and hoping to help, you know, the next generation of people or my current generation in how to adapt to situ to certain situations. So that's that's a, a main focus right now. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm involved with my NJTL chapter mm -hmm. um, because it's about reaching back and providing a pathway for these youth as someone did for me. And so that's a huge passion of mine that um, inspires me every day. Um, I have not been, you know, daily in, involved daily for the last four years because of obviously I was a little busy doing some other things, but I have a great team that that has been managing that and the board has supported, you know, my other endeavors um, because that also helps bring, you know, a spotlight on our program, particularly for donors, because it's all about donations, which is how we are able to provide what we do. Um, so I'm, um, you know, broadcasting, you know, being on air, I think is important for me. It's important to be able to stay, maintain that platform to talk about, uh, some of the, a lot of the positive things that have happened for me in the sport, but also just for women in general. Um, I, I really have gotten involved on a gender equality kick. Um, not that I haven't always been supportive of that, but I think I, I recognize my position in, in understanding that people do listen. Um, and so there's opportunities out there and through the ITF, uh, I'm the chairperson of the gender equality in tennis committee which okay. gives me a, a platform to kind of talk about it globally um so in that you know i do speak in engagements um i'm for higher people mm -hmm. and uh and to really focus on that and, and and having people use their current skills to elevate them in their own businesses and, and what their goals are but in understanding that we have to have a diversity of thought in order to succeed in business and we do a great job when we're doing a lot of women's forums and women's conferences and, and we're inspiring one another and we go back and we all gung ho. But if we don't have the, men, the very men in those same rooms and conferences to hear and learn and understand, when we go back to our respective positions, not much changes. You know, our voices get a little louder and a little stronger, but if the people that are listening that are constantly making the decisions are not inspired to change, then we have a problem. So well, what, I, I'm what all you, for these, what, well, what are these women forums, but we've got to get the key men in those forums as well. Like what are the most pressing issues for a female tennis player at the moment or women in business? I know that's a general one, but what would you say are the most yeah. pressing concerns at the moment? Well, I think for the, the female players, and, and it's just from my observation, um, and, and it's not much, you know, a lot has changed since I was on tour, but at the end of the day, you know, there's equality when it comes to the Grand Slams because everything's the same across the board as far as access, prize money, television, et cetera. But then when they go back to their respective tours, the ATP tour for the men and the WTA for the women, there's a discrepancy in prize money. You know, and the top tier um, female tournament is, is paying a lot less than the top male tier. And when they have joint, if they have joint events outside of the Grand Slams, 
they're not equal in prize money. And so it's, it's, um, it's confusing for the public to know, and I, I don't know the numbers, but I'm going to say if the winner of, you know, the men's event at the same tournament is getting 1.3 million and the same, you know, the winner for the women is getting 900,000. I'm just mm. giving you an sure. example. I don't mm -hmm. know the numbers, but why is that? They're saying they're playing at the same tournament on the same courts in the same format, best of three sets, et cetera. And, and I think it's important for the men to know that when they have combined events, you know, what our, our current chairman uses this and he makes the statement all the time. One plus one is three, because if they're combined, there's more value in sponsorship and television, et cetera, for the combined event. And the men have to recognize that and they should embrace that because if it's just a single event, if they look at their tour, their prize money is a lot less for the same level tournament when they're by themselves as opposed to when they're joint. And that's because mm -hmm. by having the women, they're, they're adding value to the tournament. And because they're adding value, then they should also be treated equally. Um, and I think that's something that their CEO, Steve Simon, is, is obviously working towards. Mm -hmm. um, but I think those are, you know, the challenges for the women would, would equate to, to prize money and, and sponsorship that the men are getting. I think the women's game is, is very exciting right now. You have a lot of young, um, relatively to the public's eye, unknown players, but every champion starts off unknown. Okay. And then they become who they are. And so when you see the changing of the guard of these young, you know, uh, aspiring tennis players, we have to embrace them and, and support them as the future of tennis because it is exciting. They all have their own little personalities that are out there and, and, and it's good. And so when you translate that over into just general business, it's the same. I mean, you know, the, the most disparaging difference um, or concern is equal pay. You know, we're in the same position in our respective jobs, but most women are getting 63%, you know, 63 cents on the dollar of, of what their male counterpart is receiving in the same position. And I'm not talking about C-suite. I'm just talking about in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, and so that's, that's a challenge. And and it's understanding, you know, we got to get rid of this good old boy network. Um, there's no diversity of thought in there. They all think the same way. So therefore, there, there's not enough, a, a lot of room for, uh, for change or growth. Uh, mm -hmm. Because as long as in their minds, they've been successful in what they're doing, why do they need to do anything different? When in reality, you may be successful now, but you can be a lot more successful if you start to be more inclusive. You know, what I love most about your answer was that you offered solution, you know, to the tennis issue. There, there's a solution, you know, combined events with proof of that they, they actually work better. So you're speaking the language of the promoter because, you know, as I think about sport, I think, okay, so those, um, you know, non-Grand Slam events, it's, what is, who's in charge of that? Who's making those decisions as the promoter? So to me, it's, it's all business again, isn't it? You know, business is making those choices. And um, yeah, I just feel that 
with anything, if you want to be innovative and if you want to be here tomorrow, or at least in 10 years time, you can't be the same. And, and I love that you've really like addressed that point through, you know, this pay gap, which is hard for me to fathom. I've never experienced a pay gap. So the best way around a pay gap is work for yourself. <laughs> um, there you go. Oh, yeah. But, but, but however, the, the hard part is it's so unfathomable. It's so ridiculous when you say it. I just can't even fathom what the logic could be to back it up. So I feel confident knowing that you're out there, um, you know, waving the flag for us all. And I appreciate you so much. You guys don't know this, but we worked really, really hard to sit down together. And so thank you so much for taking the time to speak to our community. And um, yeah, you're a powerhouse. Love what you're about. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And uh, keep up the great work because uh, forums like this are greatly needed. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Don't forget to join the community at bit.ly slash the Nat and Sarah show to download your three-step journal and participate in weekly lives found only in our private group. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You've got to rate and review the show. And I know all the podcasts are always asking this. And in the past, I wasn't doing it. And the reason I wasn't doing it is because I actually didn't know how to do it. So open your podcast player and click on our show from your library, not the listen now. That's where I was going wrong in the past. So now that you know how to do it, when you go there, make sure you give us a five-star review. Five stars, five stars, five stars. And then click on write a review link to actually write a review so that you can tell other people that we're legit and even funny, maybe a bit serious. So if you want to recommend this to someone, you have to put your fingers on the keys and send us a review. Thanks.